0: Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Greg Peterson here, and welcome to the 280th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where three days a week we work together educating and inspiring you to become part of your food revolution. Growing plants that thrive in your yard is a lot easier than you think. It starts with saving your own seeds and letting them remember what they already learned. Just text SEEDS to 33444 or visit iwanttosaveseeds.com and you will receive our free webinar on why seeds matter, why saving them is easy, and how to save your own. Today on our podcast, we have someone who is passionate about creatures of all sizes and their role in our food revolution. We're talking to Nancy Lawson about humane gardening. Nancy is a columnist for All Animals Magazine as well as the founder of Humane Gardener an outreach initiative dedicated to the cultivation and compassion for all creatures, great and small, through animal friendly, environmentally sensitive landscaping methods. She speaks frequently to local and national audiences and volunteers as both a master naturalist and a master gardener in Central Maryland. Nancy is the author of The Humane Gardener, Nurturing a Backyard Habitat for Wildlife, published by Princeton Architecture Press in April 2017 and highlighted in Oprah Magazine, The Washington Post and The Library Journal. Welcome to the show today, Nancy. Thank you. It's great to be on. So, I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today?
1: Yeah, so when I was working at the Humane Society of the of the US in the early 2000s, late 90s, I was working on a project with some of our wildlife biologists and it had to do with writing for our magazines about resolving conflicts with geese humanely. And at the time and still now, there were a lot of communities who were really upset with the what they perceived to be as overpopulation of geese on their lawns on the lakefronts, the artificial lakes that are around in a lot of places around here. And so oftentimes the federal government would be called in to call the geese. Hmm. And in looking at what some of the solutions were that were actually effective, one of the ones that I found to be the most creative and interesting and that sort of led me toward the idea of what I called humane landscaping at the time was the fact that Geese actually are attracted to shorelines that are pretty much mowed down. So they, they're mm. tundra nesters. So they love to nest in lawns and grass because they're mowed and clipped and they can see the water easily and escape from predators quickly. That oh my way.
0: God. That is so funny. So our nicely landscaped lawns are attracting them.
1: Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> wow. so yeah it, so there was a company landscape company um, that some of the people I was working with worked with and they were doing these experimental plantings of of buffers along the lake fronts of native grasses and bushes and it really is an effective deterrent the geese don't want to land there and hang out their nest there and so it just made me think about the fact that plants are the answer to so many problems, but we keep mowing them down and not only is the absence of those plants creating conflicts like this, it's also on the other hand, not inviting wildlife and making other species more rare. Uh, a lot of our native bees for example and and birds who need native plants for their for their nutrition and survival so, so that sort of got me thinking about why, why we need to think about our outdoor spaces differently. Mm-hmm. And at the time I was gardening a lot and I was just getting into native plants in the early 2000s too. So the intersection came from there.
0: So really what you're doing is you're working in the flow of nature to, to address the overpopulation of wild animals that we're finding in our cities.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, a lot of wildlife are attracted, some of the more common mammals are attracted to these human-built environments. Mm -hmm. And we've created more habitat for them that way. But it's a tricky issue because, for example, with deer, which uh, many, many gardeners rail against here, and the solution is often, let's just kill them they are attracted to these transition edge zones that we make Mm -hmm. with our lawns. and, And then they're blamed for coming up and eating the few tulips that you've got. And in my community, we have people with two to five acre lawns. And most people don't plant that much. And so what they do plant gets eaten. And what we found is that the more that you start to let native grasses come up these seeds they're dormant in the seed bank the more that you let native trees start to sucker that they like to eat like sassafras trees are native here in Maryland and staghorn sumacs and they actually like to eat eat those and nibble on the bark and and they start pruning those and if you just let an area go like that even a small one you're giving them more food so it takes the pressure off some of your your garden plants and it's not really something that's very explored or talked about because there's always kind of this black and white solution. They're here. There's too many of them. Let's get rid of them. Instead of let's change the way we look at how we're, we're managing these spaces.
0: Right. We've started dealing with things like this here in Phoenix. We have interestingly enough in the city center area, we've got bobcats, raccoons, coyotes, and foxes. And so I've had a long conversation with our the rep from the Arizona Game and Fish Department and removing them doesn't work because what happens is is the population just fills back in the space if you remove exactly. the ones that are there.
1: Exactly. So that's, exactly.
0: That's fighting nature again.
1: Right, exactly. And and some animals like coyotes have have these mechanisms for reproducing even more right. when you yeah, when you do that. So yeah, so there's there's other ways to coexist with them and to start to look at our at our landscapes as it's not just our home. You know, it's not it's we our our homes are very transactional for us these days where people buy a house and then they wanna fix it up for resale in ten right. years. And they wanna do that with their yard too. And it's very easy to go to a big box center and make it look like everyone else's the same way you make your living room look like everyone else's so that everything's just sort of cookie cutter but it's really bad we're generalist species so we can do that we can find food in so many places and shelter but a lot of these animals can't do that right so yeah
0: wow so what is what do you mean by humane gardening i have i have your book here by the way i just want to do a shout out for you it's a beautiful book the humane Thank gardener you. nurturing a backyard habitat for wildlife by nancy lawson and you got beautiful color pictures in here so so Number 1 tell us about what you mean by humane gardening and then tell us a little bit about the book.
1: Yeah, thanks. So the the humane gardening concept is to invite to plant and cultivate in a way that it actually invites wildlife in, but then on the other hand to also implement methods for preventing conflicts with them and you know you don't want them in your attic and you don't you need to you need to learn to have that balance, and so uh, there are humane ways to, to do that and to do humane exclusion if you're growing a vegetable garden or something like that, but a lot of books out there, and there's a lot of wonderful books about creating wildlife habitat, but a lot of them are sort of selective for butterflies or birds or right. yeah, bees, and some of the more common animals, like we've been talking about, can tend to be vilified even sometimes among people in native plant circles uh, because they eat their plants. And then on the other hand, what I had noticed over the years and what I tried to address in this book too, and the audience I was trying to reach were sometimes people who are animal welfare advocates on behalf of these maligned animals, Mm -hmm. mammals generally, they will actually kind of recommend to people well if you don't like snakes get rid of your brush pile or some of the other types of advice are like plant deer resistant plants which is actually kind of ineffective because they have a rotating palette and they're all different but also (laughs) a lot of lists of deer resistant plants are actually have historically included invasive plants or plants that are not good for bees and butterflies in the other wallet right so it's just trying to bring that all together to say, you know, don't garden for this species or that species, garden for everybody, including us. And so the book itself is primarily a myth-busting book. And mm, Nice. Yeah, and I think about it from the what I call the standpoint of the framework of fear. So there's this whole marketing by pesticide companies and nuisance wildlife control companies and others that kind of... We, we get exposed to and we get ingrained in us without even knowing it sometimes where we we start to think of certain really valuable plants as weeds or we don't even know what plants are actually valuable because anything we didn't plant or find at the big box store is a weed, you know, something that comes up that actually might be the perfect plant for for your garden and for wildlife.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then so we malign the plants and then we... We tend to think of them as uh messy, the leaves as messy, the dead wood and and these other types of habitat elements that are just just as important as live plants for wildlife and and then damage you know damage to your to your trees quote unquote to your leaves and it might be a leaf cutter bee cutting out holes to line her nest with little pieces of leaves making yep. holes in your leaves, yeah, or it might be a caterpillar. Who's gonna be a butterfly or feed a bird and, and then pests and nuisances. So animals like skunks are automatically thought to be bad creatures when actually they can be really helpful in the garden. They can eat things like tomato hornworms for you and grubs and and but people fear these animals because they don't understand their cues and their we've sort of lost our our understanding of wildlife behavior in some ways. So um. So I so I address that and talk about everything from skunks to opossums to javelinas and and why they behave certain ways and why you don't have to fear them. And then I have in the book at the end of each chapter a profile of somebody in a different region of the country. Oh, nice. And, yeah. And so that's meant to to show people that these concepts are universal. So it doesn't matter what flora and fauna you have locally. You can do this and. You can do it with different resource levels, and and also, I try to choose people who have this sort of whole picture approach, yeah. and 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 appreciate anyone who comes into their yard. and 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 lastly, the the main thing about what I'm trying to convey in the book and elsewhere is, you don't just have to plant; you can also nurture what's already there, and that's why we called. We made the subtitle for that book, Nurturing a Backyard Habitat for Wildlife, because so often we go in and we think, you know, this, this place is a blank slate and I need to start planting. But sometimes even when it's just lawn, if you just wait a little bit and see what might already be there. Oh, yes. Yeah. And that's a a really cheap way to get great plants, too. So that's in a nutshell kind of what it's about. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So. Are you familiar with the term permaculture? Yes. Yeah. And have you studied permaculture?
1: A little bit. A little I bit. mean, yeah.
0: So mm-hmm. really, it's sounding to me like what you're proposing is, in, from from my viewpoint, permaculture. And I, I like to say permaculture is the art and science of working in the flow of nature. So really what you're proposing is that we look at our space, which is observed. So we observe our space, and then we jump in and design systems that are in the flow of nature in our fronts and backyards so that it's easier to work with it
1: yeah exactly yeah. and there's so many you yeah, got plants for people to eat too that you can that oh, yeah. come up to when you do this right yeah. I mean, oh yeah yeah, like the the staghorn sumacs I mentioned and the sassafras. I mean, the you know you can make sumac lemonade and mm-hmm. things like that. And and there's a lot of fruit trees like that I've planted here for wildlife when we first moved in, and for us like pawpaw trees and oh, yes. persimmons and and things like that. With the idea that it's it's going to be more permanent and um, and it belongs here. These are things that grow well here. Yeah. And yeah.
0: So I'm sure one of the one of the strategies in your book is to plant natives.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and not only because of the connection with um, which is huge that I know other guests have talked about on your show, with uh, Doug Tallamy quantifying just how many caterpillars a baby bird needs <laughs> to be oh raised. Oh my
0: gosh! <laughs> no kidding.
1: Yeah, um, and not only that, uh, but also some of the some of the non-native bushes, for example, are not only as we as we all know can be really invasive when they're dropped by birds and such in other natural areas mm-hmm. away from your garden, but they can also be really poisonous and in the south here it's the cedar waxwings have died from nandina bushes which are commonly planted in many areas of the country Mm -hmm. and they're asian and in pennsylvania this past winter a mom and her bear cubs died they were found dead in a church parking lot and the necropsy showed that it was uh it was almost instant death from eating english yew berries and yeah, and those aren't – I don't think that's considered invasive, but that's that's a, that's a berry that they haven't evolved with. And so in England, animals know either if they can eat it or not. And so mm-hmm. there's animals there that depend on it, like dormice and squirrels, and I think it's a satin beauty moth caterpillar, eats that plant. But here they don't – they wouldn't know that and so they're hungry in the winter and they're grabbing whatever berries they can find and they die right. and that happened out in idaho with moose and antelope and elk i think with japanese berries this winter over and over again wow. they were they found herds yeah and the I don't know, idaho dnr asked asked people can you stop planting these and can you take them out if you can and one of the media reports i read some landscapers were interviewed saying well we understand that this is a problem but it provides winter interest in the landscape and uh, we make money off it, so we're going to keep planting them. Oh, seriously? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so it's kind of up to us <sighs> you know, to make that change.
0: Yeah, take a deep breath, huh? Yeah. Wow. So, and, and I'm sure it's not just all about mammals and flying birds and that kind of stuff. You, you go into other topics as well?
1: Yeah, so one of the things that, it really intrigues me are all the different needs of our nearly 4,000 native bee species in the oh, country. Right. and Yeah, and the specialist bees needing the pollen of only certain plants, and so that's a pretty important thing to pay attention to if you're gardening for wildlife, because a lot of our native plants that co-evolved with those bees, and some of them are very tiny bees that you wouldn't even really know it's a bee until you start right. looking at them more closely. Yeah. yeah. So, and they, they gather, you know, pollen from, there's a violet specialist bee, there's a common evening primrose specialist bee, and, and there's aster specialist bees, goldenrod. And so, you know, if you're planting a native plant, it's, you're bound to be helping somebody. And so uh, that's, <laughs>
0: I, I love how you said that you're bound to be helping somebody, not something.
1: <laughs> you're right.
0: Nice. Nice. Okay. Nice. We were out on a hike. I was out on a hike with a buddy of mine, Kevin, the other day, and it's uh, you know those big black bumblebees. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's bumblebee season here, and they're out in force. And you know when yeah. we hike, they kind of dive bomb us a little bit. And it's <laughs> it's you know they don't sting. They're they're harmless.
1: Were they carpenter bees? Yeah,
0: the carpenter bees.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. They're. They're so funny. Yeah.
0: And people have been trained to just fear them. You know, they're batting at them and ducking away and it's like, they're not going to eat much. Just let them be.
1: Exactly. I know. And I think, you know, that it, it makes sense initially that a person's reaction to something is going to be to protect themselves. Yes. Uh, and, but, and, and we all do that. I mean, I was in, I was lying on a float in the pool the other day and a, Something landed on my lips. <laughs> oh wow! And I, you know, and I, my first reaction was like, "Oh my god!" You know, shaking my head. Well, it was a dragonfly, and I wish I had just opened my oh. mouth and looked, because <laughs> what a cool perspective that would have been. No right? kidding. So, but I, I think it's important to just kind of face your fears and challenge your assumptions. Yeah. Because that's because, like you said, I mean, so many times. It's just something that you're unfamiliar with, but doesn't want anything to do with you, really.
0: So I'm standing on my back patio, and I'm new to this whole idea of permaculture and humane gardening, and I'm looking at my big backyard. What are three things that that I can do? What are the first three things I'm going to do in this space to kind of start stepping toward... You know this notion of humanely gardening, or or really just working with nature. And I'm actually going to say, do a precursor to that, and say you can get her book, "The Humane Gardener," as well. So that could be number one. So what's two, three, and four?
1: Okay, so first I would assess what's already there, Mm -hmm. and start noticing who what types of animals are visiting and and maybe actually before you even do anything in your yard look around in other spaces to see if somebody nearby has a wildlife habitat already Mm. and take a cue Mm -hmm. from that but are you talking about if you're trying to grow a vegetable garden and attract wildlife sure yeah let's go there for starters yeah so um so one of the One of the books from Xerces Society, Farming with Native Beneficial Insects. Have you read that one? Uh,
0: I have, and we've had them on our show as well.
1: Okay, yeah, they've had several books, and that one has some neat case studies about how much more productive your farm can be, your farm crops, when you have those Mm -hmm. pollinator patches nearby because they attract the parasitoid wasps and the predator wasps and other animals that kind of keep the insect balance in check on your yeah and so i would look at what types of plants are native to your area that are going to help attract those types of animals Mm -hmm. and then also i mean animals need things more than just plants so if you know you're if you're talking about you're in phoenix if you're if your whole yard is, I know some of them, some people still do try to grow grass there, right? Oh, and, yeah, we do that there. <laughs> and have a lot of gravel and a lot of mulch and things like that. So you're you're going to kind of not have as many hospitable places for these ground-nesting bees and these other animals that you want to come and help pollinate your plants because most of them nest in the ground, in twigs, in dead wood, and so I would look at what type of elements that you already have like that, or that you can add that will harbor some of these creatures, the dead wood bringing bringing the beetles who then might bring the birds who mm-hmm. eat the beetles and not be and not be tempted to just you know yank down a standing dead tree, for example, or um, something else that might provide a different kind of habitat you may not have thought about yeah. yet.
0: So interestingly, I I had one of the big trees on the property here. I have a third of an acre. It's about 14,000 square feet. And I have a a large ash tree in the backyard. And about every five years, I have to do a, you know, a nice trim on it. And one of the branches that they took off recently had carpenter bees nesting in
1: it. Oh, my gosh. And so I,
0: I had them cut the three foot length and leave it here on the property Oh and, that's awesome. Yeah, and it's really interesting. It's laying in the shade over in the corner of my yard and there's this pile of sawdust at both ends where they're <laughs> con- yeah, where they're continuing to, you know, do what they do, which is break down the wood yeah. and, you know, pollinate and, you know, do everything they do. So that's awesome. Yeah. And you know, that's the, in permaculture, the the first thing we tell people to do is go out and observe your space and not just your space, but observe the spaces around you, your neighbors. And right. I've been in Phoenix for 50 years this summer, and I've been gardening for 40 years this summer here in uh-huh. Phoenix. And I still see things when I go out and wander the neighborhoods and pay attention to what's going on and so after doing this for so many decades, <laughs> I still see things. So observation yeah. is really, really important.
1: Yeah, it's amazing, and it's really, it's really joyful. I yeah. mean, the discoveries that you can make are just like with your carpenter bees. It's just, it, it, it's amazing to see how animals use every bit of space, mm-hmm. and and ones that you didn't even know were there and had never seen before. And then I'll look it up, and it'll be, oh, that's the common. Whatever, dragonfly, it's everywhere. Well, (laughs) it's new to me, and that's exciting. Right.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Well, we were talking about the dead wood. Oh, yes. You know, and adding that. And I was going to say, I'm glad that you brought up the carpenter bee story, because a lot of times people ask me, well, well, they're eating my deck, and what should I do? And oftentimes, they're not really going to do much damage. If they are, you know, you can plug it or whatever, but i rather tell them, Leave the dead wood and and put some. You know, if you have some, you can put out there for them. Put it out there for them, and they might use that instead. So, your story is a great example of that. Yeah.
0: So yeah. why is why is dead wood important in our landscapes? I mean, we already visited one reason, but why else?
1: Yeah. Well. So. There's all kinds of creatures, not only you know the beetles feeding on it, and they they make they make holes that then uh, cavity nesting bees can use, mm-hmm. pileated woodpeckers and other woodpeckers can go use. So they serve as sort of the first in the chain. The beetles do to break down that wood for the birds, but then also like fallen logs out here, you know, there's salamanders under there. Um, lizards and toads get moisture under there, and um, and so the deadwood really also adds nutrients back into the soil as it's breaking down, but there's all kinds of creatures under there and under fallen leaves like firefly larvae need fallen leaves, they need that moisture oh, yeah. layer, and so we wouldn't have fireflies here if we didn't have, if we just had the lawn because it's too dry for them. Right and so all this all this um, organic material is just so important for the whole cycle of life yeah. and for also you know dead tree snags the cavities there foxes will nest in there raccoons possums mm-hmm. and and animals that people love to love like bluebirds and right. yeah right. so In
0: permaculture, we have a zone system and zone one is the area that you go in your yard every day, all the way up to zone five, which we like to call our, our wild zones. And Mm -hmm. part of what I'm sensing is, is that we just want to let parts of our yards, parts of the space that we're gardening, just let it go and see, to see what happens. Tell me about that.
1: Yeah. So... I'll give you some examples from here. We had we have two acres, and it backs up to woods, mm-hmm. and it was pretty much scorched earth in the back, all lawn and a lone forsythia bush, and we kept mowing it for a long time. I was adding gardens, but I was basically doing it not permanently. You know, I was growing annuals from seed and vegetables from seed every year, but not focusing on the trees or right. anything like that. And we started planting some native trees, but it was still scorched earth for a really long time until we tried to let the grass go. And, and I'm pretty sure that what came up was actually native grasses, but I thought that they were some kind of European hay grass or something. And so we mowed them back down, and then I went to a nursery a few years ago, and I saw a, a native broom sedge grass. It's and, I think it's Andropogon virginicus, and it's one of the first pioneer species to come in here on disturbed land. And and I was going to buy it for fifteen dollars in a pot. <laughs> <laughs> and i didn't I ran out of my gift card someone had given me, so I didn't have enough money. I came home and a couple of days later, I was looking at those grasses that we just had neglected to mow for a few weeks, and I was like, "This is one of those grasses yeah. and and it turned out we had hundreds of them coming up and then, as we let that stay, then we had purple top grass mm-hmm. and um and now we're getting goldenrods and bone set and these other wildflowers, so we're getting the successional. Yeah. situation going on now some places where i've done this of course there's invasives coming in and so i kind of have to identify well what what is a plant i should leave and what is an invasive sometimes they look very similar right. and i don't use roundup or anything any pesticides and so i have to come up with strategies for for out- managing them those. yeah Let's say, yeah and so I started using some of these really vigorous native plants to ground covers to beat back things like we have garlic mustard, which is invading the forest understory in the east and the north here. And and we have Japanese silk grass, which does the same thing. And and I noticed one time I had left some pots of a, of a native ground cover, really beautiful, called golden ragwort, out under some trees. And the next, I just forgot about them. I was going to give them to friends. And the next spring, they were rooting out and from the bottom and yep. into the garlic mustard. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing, and yeah. and so it's you know yeah, fighting plants with plants. And so so there's all these little strategies of you know and there's no one recipe for it it's just something you start to learn but like you said when we were talking earlier there's a lot of new gardeners who may not know about those things and so mm-hmm. I, I like to try to give those ideas to people for how to do it and fortunately now unlike when you and I started there's a lot more people can find online a lot more help they can get really quickly oh my gosh, yes absolutely yeah
0: absolutely so. well awesome thank you so much for that so, yeah. so I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you might have learned from it.
1: Yeah, so sort of piggybacking on what we've been talking about, I did not assess what we had here when we came, and um, I, did, I pulled out a lot of really useful things like milkweed, which of course monarch butterflies depend on, yeah. and jewelweed, which hummingbirds love, and... I just assumed because they had the word "weed" in them, or because they looked different <laughs> from the things that I was planting, right. that they were weeds. And we also we didn't know to check for little animals on before mowing. Um, and my husband had inherited a big kind of you know tractor mower from his dad, and we mowed over a an eastern box turtle, and I wrote about Aww. that in my book and talked about how I going to spend the rest of my life trying to make up for that because that does happen sometimes where they can be treated at a wildlife rehab center. Right. But you know this this turtle had been obliterated and turtles they reproduce really slowly and it doesn't take much to make a local population go extinct. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, and and so it that sort of thing is just just heartbreaking it happens all the time but I I've made a lot of mistakes, and but those are those are some that I think are preventable. Uh, even if you have to still mow, if you still have need a little grass area for your kids, or, mm-hmm. you, or, you, or you have a huge space and you're you know slowly trying to convert, there are things you can do like walk around first and see who's there. And now when we just mow paths through the meadow, for the most part, and I walk in front of the mower while my husband's mowing. Yeah. And I use a stick and I just look for, you know, whoever's there just to let them know, too. Okay, if you're a frog, jump out of the way, you know. Right. So, um,
0: yeah. Nice. So what do you consider your biggest success?
1: Well, my my biggest success, I'd have to say, it is is the book because what I wanted to do with that, and it seems to be working so far, is to help people look differently at their spaces and think from other species perspectives. Mm. And and I've heard from a lot of people, even, I mean, I have uh, friends that I've made recently who used to run nature centers and things like that, and they actually didn't know how much life they could support even in a small space of their own yard, and they weren't really focused on that. And now they're really excited to even sort of have made peace with the rabbits and right. <laughs> figured out a way to plant for them too, and and things like that. So, and when young people respond to this idea of of gardening differently, I think that that's really important. And I've had I had someone come to one of my talks who said, I. I just started gardening last year, and I've made so many mistakes. I've completely changed what I'm doing, and I'm telling all my friends. And that—that that I think was the best. Yeah. Result. Yeah, because that's the new generation. Yeah, so
0: exactly, exactly. I love getting input from people that are, you know, kind of listening to the seeds that we're planting out there, and and yeah. it's making a difference for them.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I because we're so used to being being marketed to, and it's, I think there's so many people who care, they just don't know.
0: Yeah. So what drives you?
1: So what drives me are both the animals and the people, and seeing seeing every day when I walk out the door, uh, something new, making use of a plant, or a, or a twig, or, or a fallen leaf, and knowing that there's, it's so easy to actually make a difference Mm -hmm. and to convert this 40 plus million acres of lawn back to something more productive. And, and then the seeing the people who are, are actually doing this around the country and is really, really inspiring to me and interviewing them. And there was a woman I profiled in Florida who just posted today that she she finds these amazing discoveries in her yard. And she she's done this by letting certain areas go and seeing what comes up over mm-hmm. the course of the last 10 years. And she had a picture of a spider eating a tree frog. Whoa! And, <laughs> yeah. And she posted it at some point on her blog. And got contacted by a scientist because he was it's really rare and he was doing a paper on it. And so she, she, it got, it just got published. And so she shared, you know, that she's the ultimate citizen scientist, and human gardener in my mind because she doesn't yeah. kill anything because she knows how valuable everything is to everything else. Yeah. Yeah. And that exactly. really inspires me.
0: Nice. So if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why?
1: Yeah, so the book that I would recommend along these lines is called Wild Neighbors, Wild Neighbors, The Humane Approach to Living with Wildlife. And it's, I believe, out of print, but you can still get a used copies. And it is a national book, so it has species profiles and natural histories and methods of conflict prevention and resolution for animals around the country Mm -hmm. and so uh, that was written by a wildlife biologist I worked with and he used to work at the National Park Service and then he worked at the Humane Society so he had a varied background and it's just very very gently written very beautiful and and also really helpful it's helped me a lot in my own garden over the years and then the, the other book I was going to mention that I just was really influenced by is old now from 2001. I'm sure you've read it. It's called The Botany of Desire. By oh, Michael my gosh.
0: Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah.
1: That just changed the way I looked at plants mm-hmm. and our relationship with them. So it really was, had a big impact on me. Yeah.
0: That's an extraordinary book. So I, and I'm going to do something I don't normally do. I want to talk a little bit more about your book the Humane Gardener. Um, okay. And what I want to ask you is, uh, your publisher, Princeton Architectural Press, uh-huh. can you tell us, because th- this is normally where we get the gardening books at uh, right. you know, from this press, so uh, tell, make right. that connection for me. How did you make that happen? Because that's pretty magical.
1: Well, that's a good question. Okay, so I was writing a column for, and I still am, for the uh, magazine of the Humane Society. I don't work there anymore, but I freelance for them. And Mm -hmm. it it was called Humane Backyard at the time, and it was for All Animals magazine. And the editorial director emailed HSUS and said, can you tell me how to get in touch with Nancy Lawson? Because I wanted to see if she wants to write a book.
0: Oh, nice.
1: Yeah, I had never actually. I had considered it, but by the time I was uh, got around ready to write a book, I felt like, oh, maybe this has already been done. You yeah. know, I'm sure someone's written about this. So that's how that started. And they do, they do some nature books uh, and they do landscape architecture, but they're they're mainly a fine art publisher. Right? Exactly. Yeah.
0: Wow. So how, how exciting yeah. for you! Congratulations. That's, that's thank you. Yeah. And again, once again, it is a beautiful book. Great pictures. Um, and I don't know, having gardened for 30 plus years really actively, I don't know that I've seen another book near this topic. So yeah, it hadn't already been done.
1: Yeah, that, that's <laughs> great to hear. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners?
1: Well, so I would say, and I've heard you say this on your podcast, mm-hmm. that nobody has... There's no such thing as a black thumb. I think yeah. that that you can't overemphasize that because there's so much fear around. Am I doing things right? Am I following the recipe of yeah. plant these plants one foot apart and add this fertilizer and and so I would say trust yourself and trust plants. They know how to grow, and and they and animals need them. Animals need plants as much as we do, uh, and so the more that you can add to your landscape. Don't don't worry about being a perfectionist. Yeah. And yeah, that's where I would start.
0: Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Nancy.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was great.
0: Absolutely. So, how can our listeners find your book? Get a hold of you?
1: You can find the book on any major retailer, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. You can mm-hmm. usually find it at your library, and mm, you can get a hold of me through my blog at HumaneGardener.com, there's a contact form, and then I'm on Facebook at Facebook.com Humane Gardener and Instagram and Twitter, just at Gardener. Perfect.
0: You can find show notes from today's podcast at UrbanFarm.org forward slash Gardener. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Growing plants that thrive in your yard is a lot easier than you think. It starts with saving your own seeds and letting them remember what they already learned. Just text SEEDS to 33444 or visit IWantToSaveSeeds.com and you will receive our free webinar on Why Seeds Matter, Why Saving Them Is Easy, and How to Save Your Own. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast.